Our theme today is death and hope. We've been trying to grow, and we've been listening to Paul's letter, the first one that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, so that God can help us grow. And this morning, we're going to zoom in on the end of the fourth chapter. It's where our study has brought us to today. And in that place, we're going to see Paul offering a pastoral response to a specific situation in Thessalonica. Apparently, after Paul left that city and sent Timothy to get information, he learned that there were people there who he knew who had died since he left. So that even if he got to return and be with them again, which he wanted desperately, he wouldn't actually be able to be with them. And he addressed that situation in the letter. It's very personal to them, but it also is very applicable to us. It's been a year since we've been together at the Opera House. And when we get back together, there will be people who were with us then who will not be with us in the big room when we meet all together. Folks in our church who have died in this last year. Paul knew that in Thessalonica, because of this situation, the folks there were struggling with grief that was making them feel hopeless. And that made an awful lot of sense given ancient outlooks on death. In the first century, there was a myth that most folks would have known. It was the story of Mott's banquet. Mott was the god of death. Mott decided to host a banquet and he invited all the other gods to his table. The god of the vine, the god of the sun, the god of war, the god of fertility. Everyone was in attendance. They feasted on rich food that evening, the kind that is so good it makes you want to take a nap after you've eaten it. And there was plenty of wine as well. And when the meal ended and the glasses had been drained, one by one, all of the attenders dozed off to sleep. But the meal actually wasn't finished for everyone because Mott was awake still. And he finished the banquet by eating every other God at the table. I can see you wincing. (laughs) It was a story that presented the idea that everyone believed, which was that in the end, death swallows everything. Believing that, you can understand why the loss of friends would mean hopelessness. Paul wrote to the community in Thessalonica because they had lost friends and what he wanted to do was to instruct them so they could keep growing. So they could face the reality of death with hope. And I'm going to tell you right up front what we're going to see. As Christians, even though death is bleak and it is an end and a proper cause for grief, we are invited to face it with hope. Because as Paul will teach us, Death is not the end because of Jesus. Find your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This is where Paul addresses the situation at Thessalonica. Here's what he writes. 
We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Let's start with grief. Grief is that persistent emptiness and pain that comes when you've lost something you loved. The greater the love, the greater the loss. Like hunger that's not satisfied or thirst that goes unquenched, grief is that nagging ache in your heart and nothing causes more profound pain than death. The Greek philosophers taught that there's only one thing to do with grief. Avoid it. That was their wisdom. Never let your heart grow too fond of anything or anyone who you could lose, since then you will know grief in proportion to the pleasure that you've lost. The best strategy, close off your heart. Flee pleasure, and in that way, flee pain. That was the motto of the Stoics, quite popular in Thessalonica in the first century. Paul was no Stoic. But of course, there are some Christians who for different reasons advocate the same avoidance of grief, arguing that sadness is not appropriate for people of faith. Have you ever heard this argument? God knows what's good, and God governs every detail of our lives, including our deaths, and so to feel sad at death is a lack of faith. I did a funeral for a young boy a little more than a year ago. His grandfather sternly corrected the boy's father because of his tears. You prayed that your son would get well. God heard your prayers. Your son died. And so God wanted that for your son. Your tears demonstrate a lack of faith. No more crying for your son, he said. That is an absolutely unchristlike bit of guidance. And no one who follows Jesus can walk on that path when it comes to grief. Jesus lost friends to death and he wept. He trusted God and, and knew that God was good and he grieved. And so this morning for us, the first word that we need to hear from God from this letter in order to keep growing is grieve. When you've lost someone that you love, you should cry. When your heart is breaking because there was something good and it's been taken away, then you shouldn't try to hold it together, but you should let whatever feelings you have inside of your heart leak out through the cracks, whatever they are. If you're angry, if you're frustrated, if you're utterly bitter, whatever it is, you should let it come out. God doesn't want you to pretend you don't feel what you feel. When you feel grief, you should grieve. And for us to grow through what Paul has written to those folks in Thessalonica, we must receive this first word from God, which is, let your feelings flow. If you read carefully here, you see that Paul does not teach his friends not to grieve, but rather not to grieve as those do who have no hope. And there's a big difference. The question that we need to let ourselves ask now is who have I lost who I need to cry for? 
What has been taken away from me in this year that I need to grieve? With so much death behind us, in order to go on growing, we need to hear this one word first, which is grieve. But of course, we shouldn't stop there because Paul doesn't stop there. Grieve, but not like those who have no hope. For the ancient Greeks, there was almost nothing as important in life for them as hope. There's an old fable that the kids in Thessalonica would have heard right beside the banquet of Mott, the story of Zeus who, because he loved man, decided to give a gift, a container which held every good thing that anyone could ever want. Receiving this gift, and out of curiosity, the man lifted the lid to see what was inside, and immediately everything that was there began to rise up to heaven to go back to the abodes from which these gifts had come, desperate, To hold on to this treasure, the man fumbled for the lid. He managed to put it back on, but only in time to save one thing. And it turned out what was there was enough. It was hope. If you had to lose everything else, the Greeks would teach, as long as you still had hope, you were okay. The philosophers taught that hope is a man's ability to project into the future a positive belief about his own potential. No matter what was going on in the present, the ability to envision a future that was better. It's an inspirational thought, don't you think? As far as it goes, it's really helpful, but that was just the problem with this view. The power to believe in yourself has an end, and that end is death. Your death... And more importantly to the point in Thessalonica, and I would say for us too, that view can't help when someone you love has died. In the end, death swallows up everything, hope too. Leaving those who remain only with grief. This is the outlook which in Thessalonica led to grief without hope. And Paul would have known from what he saw with his own eyes when he was in that city, how that was the general outlook in that place. Every time his friends walked past the city graveyard in Thessalonica, which has been unearthed by archaeologists, they would have seen hopelessness on the gravestones. Insatiable death, why did you snatch me away from those destined to love me? That was a common epitaph carved on the gravestones that have been found in Thessalonica. Insatiable death. Mott, whose appetite never ends. Snatching away our loved ones when we were destined to love them. Do you feel it in your heart that the people that you love and have lost were actually gods for you to love? And so death doesn't make sense. You should feel that. If death really does snatch away our loved ones forever, then grief without hope makes sense. And the advice of the Stoics is the best advice. Guard your heart 
and never love anyone or anything too much. But here, in what Paul writes to the folks at Thessalonica, there's a word of practical instruction, teaching that the prevailing view of death is based upon misinformation. Did you hear the way Paul started? We do not want you to be uninformed. Paul knew that this bleak and hopeless outlook on death was based on misinformation, and so he's going to give us proper information with which to face death. Our death, when it comes, and the death of everyone that we've loved that's preceded us or may happen down the road. And I'm going to give you the heart of it before we read it together. Here it is. Jesus gives us a hope that is different than the philosopher's hope. It is not built on the belief that we're able to muster about a positive future, but instead it's built on what happened in the past to Jesus and what will happen in the future to everyone who belongs to him, which is the truth that the story told about Mott is a lie. I want you to look at verse 14 with me now. Let's, let's take our time here. Verse 14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that right there is what has happened in the past with Jesus. We believe that in the past he was crucified, dead, and buried, but then he rose again. He had been swallowed up by death, but it couldn't hold him down. It was an end. The crucifixion really happened, but it wasn't the end. The resurrection also really happened. And Paul says here, we believe that because that's what he believed. Not that Jesus came back in a spiritual sense or in a sentimental sense like we always wish that he would come back and so he lives in our hearts. No, Paul believed this because when he was on the road to Damascus, he actually met the resurrected Jesus face to face with a real body and with the power of the resurrection present in his face as he stared at Paul's face, making it plain that death couldn't hold Jesus down. That happened in the past, Paul says, and we believe it. And now look at the second part of verse 14. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. Even so means in the same way that Jesus rose to new life in the past, we who belong to him by faith will rise to new life in the future. Jesus was the first to come through death, but he will not be the last. That's the ground of our hope, according to Paul. Trust Jesus, and this will be your future too. Death will not win in the end. Jesus will. God will do for those who have died in the future just what he did for Jesus in the past. That is the ground of the hope that we're given in Jesus when we face death. Let that sink in for a moment. What happened for Jesus is promised for you. This is God's promise. In the future, God will defeat death just as he did for Jesus in the past, giving a new bodily existence to those who belong to him forever. That is our hope. Now, maybe the thought of that raises as many questions for you as hope it gives to you. Is that true? Does it raise some questions for you? Maybe it makes you wonder 
What about people who don't believe in Jesus? What will happen for them? Or what about those people who never had the chance to believe? They never heard of him. Or what about those who died and chose not to believe even though they heard of him? Or maybe it makes you wonder about yourself. Will this promise count for me? I know that people ask these questions because they've asked me these questions. They're good questions. This truth raised questions for the folks in Thessalonica too. But in order to hear what Paul says next, listen now, we have to set aside whatever questions we have and let their questions open us to what Paul says. In verse 15, if we read carefully, we can see what they were asking. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. In Thessalonica, those folks were wondering about what would happen to their friends who had died already in the event that Jesus returned while they were still alive. Their question was, if he comes back while we're still alive, will we experience something that our friends who have already died will miss out on? That was their question. And Paul's answer to them was three words right there. By no means. Paul promises them, we will not be with Jesus if he returns when we're still alive. We will not be with Jesus in a way that those who have died will already miss out. The reason they think that is they're still operating according to the first century understanding of death, which is once it swallows you up, you're gone forever. No, Paul says. He wants them to understand that the hope for what's ahead is a hope for people who are alive when Jesus returns, and it's equally true for those who have already died when he returns. He's going to elaborate in verses 16 and 17, but listen, before we read them, I have to give you another interpretive principle. You notice how I've been giving them along the way as we've read the letter to 1 Thessalonians? That's because I hope that you don't only learn what it says here, but that you also learn how to read the Bible on your own because God will help you grow that way. And the interpretive principle that comes for us today is especially important because what comes next in verses 16 and 17 has been the foundation for one very prominent misunderstanding about the end times. And here's the interpretive principle for us today. It is this. Sometimes you need to get outside help. With certain themes and with certain subjects in the Bible, sometimes it is so difficult to understand what's written there that the only way you can do it is by receiving guidance from trustworthy scholars who've applied themselves to the task of making what's obscure to us clear. And that comes very simply because of the way that Paul wrote. Have you ever been reading something and thought, what on earth is he saying? That's, that's actually not entirely bad because at least you know you don't understand Worse is when you read something and think he means something other than what he actually means. And that happens a lot. And it happens in this passage. And it happens for a few reasons. Listen now. Sometimes Paul uses a group of images which would have communicated to the first readers something that is lost on us because we're unfamiliar with what those images mean when they happen all together. That's one thing that happens. 
Sometimes Paul uses a literary convention that would have indirectly hinted to the first readers how to understand what he was writing. But for readers unfamiliar with those conventions, the point will be lost. When you hear me say, once upon a time, you know what's coming next, right? But maybe folks in 2,000 years won't know what that means. And then lastly, there are moments where there's wordplay that's only clear in the original language. All three of those things happen in this text. And, and that's why we need to pause before we read it and accept this interpretive principle. Sometimes you need help. Let's look at these two verses now and then take our time with them. Verse 16. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now this text right here, which I've just read, is the primary source for the concept of the rapture. Are you familiar with that? A theological doctrine which is built on the view that these words here are a visual description of future events just as they're going to take place. Believers snatched up into the air and everyone else who's unworthy left behind. Within the history of Christianity, this idea, which to some of us might seem very old, is actually very new. It was nowhere in traditional teaching until the middle of the 19th century, and then only among a small group of evangelical Protestants in the United States of America. At first, it was a fringe doctrine, but then it became mainstream, and you probably heard about it, in, in the middle of the 1990s because of the Wildly popular book series left behind. 16 best-selling novels. Have some of you read them? And then four movies in case you don't like to read. If you grew up in a church that held this view, then you probably were anxious that at any time Jesus might appear and take away those who had proved worthy, leaving behind those who were not prepared, and maybe you wondered if you would be one of the people who was not prepared. Was that true for any of you? Uh, a friend told me about a practical joke that was played at a Christian summer camp. All of the guys in the cabin were in on the joke. After everyone went to sleep, the one guy who didn't know about what was going to happen remained there in his bed, while the rest of the guys set their clothing out and their shoes on the bed, they quietly left the cabin, and then one guy with a trumpet outside of the door blasted it as loud as he could. If you hear that from this text, I think you are mishearing what Paul is saying. It's a mistake to believe that Paul is teaching something like that here. And it's a reasonable mistake because this is very hard to understand. God is not like that. He doesn't want you to forever be wondering whether you'll make it or not. He doesn't want you to wonder if the loved ones that you've lost will make it or not, fearing that in the end, maybe they or you won't be prepared so that you'll be left behind. If that's how it worked, 
It's as simple as this. If that's how it worked, then your hope would be placed in your ability to be prepared at the right time. But we've already learned that's not how God works. There's only one thing that we can hope in, and it is that in his grace, Jesus will accept us when we choose simply to rely on him in faith and believe in him. That is the only thing that rescues us, not our being prepared at some certain time in the future, not our diligence so that we're ready at whenever the trumpet happens to blast. Here is where the outside help can be so uh, so crucial for us to understand what's happened here and save us from a misunderstanding. There are three clear clues once you have some help that make it plain that's not what we're meant to take from this text. The first clue is in a cluster of images that appear in verse 16. I want you to look carefully there again. You'll see three images in a row, a cry of command, the archangel's call, and the sound of God's trumpet. All three of these are military images depicting God as a warrior, a cluster that may be new to us but wouldn't have been to people who knew the history of God's people. All three of these frequently appear within the prophets, always representing the exact same thing, a theophany, the appearance of of God in history, the promise that God himself will come in the future. How will he come? With an audible cry from an angel or a trumpet blast that can be heard? No, Paul's readers understand that when images like this appear together, the point isn't to say the exact details, but rather to point out the nature of God's arrival. And in this case, Paul is teaching that in the end, God will come like a warrior to do battle. Who will God fight? Paul wants them to understand that the enemy death in the end, we'll do battle with God. And when that fight happens, God's going to win. Because God is a warrior who is stronger than the enemy, death. When God comes, he'll win and then bring up those who had been brought down before by death so that death won't win in the end. That's the point of this cluster of images. That's our first clue. The second clue is related to genre. And this one's very hard to see without help. The second point, the, the genre point, makes it clear that in the end, everyone will know that Jesus is the king. Okay, the first readers would catch this because of their familiarity with language. We will miss it. But look back at verse 15. They could tell that the language Paul is using is political in nature. First of all, when they would come across the phrase, which in verse 15 is the coming of the Lord. It's right there in the middle of the verse. This phrase in Greek uses a technical term for the arrival of an official authority who's left his headquarters behind to visit a city in his territory. In Greek, it's parousia. It just means arrival. When the emperor comes to your city, that's the word that's used to describe his visit. You combine that with a second technical term, which is all the way over in verse 17. This is the phrase, to meet the Lord. 
This one is the word that would have been used for the gathering outside of the city gates with those who were loyal to the king who is arriving. When they learned that the emperor was to come, those who were his would leave the city behind, meet him outside of the city gates, and then together they would process in joyfully to show that they were his subjects. You put these two phrases together and the first readers would hear these words as a promise that when Christ returns, he will come not only as a warrior, but also as the true king. And he's going to gather his people in the air, literally. No, from the place which he comes, he'll gather them so that all together they'll arrive at the city where there will be no doubt who's the true king. Is Mott in charge or is it Jesus? The answer is that it's Jesus. That's the second clue. And now the third, this one's in a play on words. This one comes in verse 17. Uh, if you have your own Bible... Circle the word caught up. Uh, this word here asserts in a clever way, again, that death loses in the end. In Latin, which is the translation of the Bible that was so popular in the beginning of the 17th century, the word caught up is raptura. And it's the word from which our English word rapture comes. This is the place where the doctrine of rapture started from a Latin translation of the Bible. You know that Paul didn't write the Bible in Latin. He wrote it in Greek. In Greek, that word there is harpazo. And that is a clever wordplay which everyone in Thessalonica would have understood immediately. Insatiable death why did you snatch me away from those destined to love me? That's what it said on the gravestones. In Greek, it said on the gravestones, insatiable death, why did you harpazo me away? If it were in Latin, it would have said, why did you rapture me away? In Thessalonica, grief, because of the loss of loved ones, was hopeless because they believed that death was the one that snatched away their loved ones forever. And here, when Paul tells them what to hope in when it comes to what's going to happen down the road, is that death may have snatched your loved ones away, but in the end, the Lord of life will snatch them back. Together with us who remain and everyone who has died, the Lord is going to come and he is the one who will steal us back from death's icy and horrible grip. It will not be able to hold us down any longer because the Lord, who is the warrior who comes to fight death, who is the king, who is the true sovereign, who when he returns will bring us so that everyone sees that he has ultimate power, will also be the one who steals aback everyone who has been stolen by death. And in that moment, then, and this is the point of this text, not to make you afraid of whether you'll be worthy or not. The gospel puts that to rest forever. The point of this text is in the future, we will be grasped by God so that, two things, so that we will be together forever with one another and together forever with the Lord. That is the ground of our hope. Look at verse 18. This is how Paul ends this section. Therefore, he says, with that hope in mind, Encourage one another 
with these words. Now that ending there is a challenge to everyone who's a part of the community of faith who's growing. Encourage one another with these words. If you have a friend in faith who's lost a loved one who belongs to Jesus, encourage them with these words. It's not the end. You tell them that. You'll be with them again. Jesus is the Lord of all. He'll win. If, if you have a friend who's not sure of faith, tell them the gospel. Tell them, all you need to do is put your trust in Jesus. Then you are his forever. And then encourage them with these words. When you are brokenhearted yourself because of someone who has been lost, if you can't remind yourself of these words, find someone else that you know from church and ask them, would you encourage me with the truth? I need it now. Paul encouraged them so they would encourage one another. And if you take any encouragement from this text, that's your responsibility moving forward. To build up one another with these words. You know that, that story of Mott's banquet? That was really old. All the way back in Isaiah's day, people knew that story too about the banquet that death would host where he swallowed up everyone. The Hebrew word for death is mat. Listen to these words from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Please take this to heart. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Friends, let's join our hearts together in prayer. God, for everything we've loved and lost, for every person who we've held dear and lost, we ask that you'd give us the strength to grieve, but not without hope. Take this word from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and make it your word in our hearts so that we are able to grieve with hope, trusting that in the end, you are the one who will swallow up death forever and that we ourselves have before us by faith and by your grace. The same kind of everlasting life that we've seen already in Jesus. Comfort our hearts so that we may comfort others with the same comfort that you've given to us. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.